I left my job in 2018. What the Lord has done in the past few years is better than anything I could have done myself with all my work and all my might. And I am so content in every situation now because I just know that I'm following His lead. Welcome to the Women in Work podcast, the show that inspires you to confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. I'm Courtney Moore. And I'm Missy Branch. We want to introduce you to women who, through their own unique vocations, are seeing what they do make an eternal difference. And we pray these conversations will inspire you in your own calling to honor God, to image Him to the world through your work, and to leverage your potential for His glory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, welcome everyone to today's podcast. Uh, Courtney and I are so excited to have you. Today we have Dr. Sarah Rayner joining us. Dr. Rayner, I am excited to have you here because we get to hang out from time to time with some women's events and things around Sebitz campus. Dr. Sarah Rayner has her master's and doctorate degrees in clinical psychology. She specializes in child and adolescent mental health and development. Sarah is also the co-host of the Parenting and Pennies podcast on the Christian Parenting Podcast Network. Sarah serves in leadership at her church for women's discipleship and enjoys discipling other women. She enjoys being a guest writer, speaker, and podcaster for different organizations. And Sarah Rayner is so much fun to be around. Welcome to the show. Ladies, I am so grateful you had me on. I've just really been looking forward to this. We're going to have fun. Sarah, this has just been great. We just met in person uh, last week at the Cultivate Conference at Southeastern's campus, Mm -hmm. and I was so happy to meet you in person. I've been following you on Instagram for a while and really soaking up a lot of the wisdom you're sharing there um, about parenting and some of the things we'll talk about today. So honestly, it is just, just so much fun to have you on. Thank you. I loved meeting you, and I thought it was hilarious that you said to me, wow, you're taller than I imagined. (laughs) That is always the way it is, right? When you know people online and then you meet in person. Yes. Um, Yeah, so beautiful and tall and so happy to, to know you in real life now. So, Sarah, one of the things we do, if you've listened to the podcast, we have a fun, just a quick little rapid fire get to know you questions. And so just answer these with kind of the first thing that pops on your mind. All right. So our first question, Sarah, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Okay. I had two things and you cannot laugh. One, the serious one was I I wanted to be a psychiatrist actually, even as a kid. Number two, I really wanted to be a Victoria's Secret model. No way. (laughs) I'm through, girl. I'm not joking for a long time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. First of all, let's walk through that for just a second. Please explain how a little girl wants to be a Victoria's Secret model. I don't know. I just thought they were gorgeous. And I thought, wow, I I really would love to be a model, not just for Victoria's Secret, but in general. I actually had a modeling contract for a little while. Wow. Um, Okay. See, I was younger. You're so tall, Sarah. Yeah. (laughs) You said it. Tall and beautiful. That's awesome. Okay. Well, the the next question is what was your first job? My first job, believe it or not, actually, I got paid under the table. Y'all, this is before I became a believer, okay? Okay. I was in eighth grade, okay, eighth grade, but actually taught, um, I helped and taught kids tennis. I was a national tennis player, so I actually helped uh, teach uh, clinics for kids in tennis. Wow. 
I actually got nervous because I thought you were going to say you were a Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> this no! is, I promise y'all, between Victoria's Secret model and getting paid under the table, this interview is going, I'm, I'm, I'm just, yeah, bombing this interview. No, you're not. I mean, I, I'm a little starstruck. Did you just call yourself a national tennis pro at, in the eighth grade? So I, when I was younger, I taught tennis and played it and would travel around to national tournaments. Yes, wow. I was arranged wow. and stuff. So yeah, don't mm -hmm. hand me a racket now. I probably couldn't pick it up very well. But yeah, I did. Well, I used to travel to different tournaments. I am the opposite, Sarah. I remember going to a free tennis camp in the summer and I would walk there with my sister. And on the second or third day, they said, so it'd be great if you drop your sister off, but you don't have to come. Oh, busy. <laughs> Wow, me and tennis are not a thing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Craziness. All right, Sarah, what kind of work do you hope to be doing when you're 80 years old? I hope to have grandbabies. Mm -hmm. I really hope to have grandbabies. Um, and I really love discipling women, and I want to keep mm -hmm. doing that. And I really enjoy talking and working with parents over the kids. And so at 80, I probably won't do it in the same capacity as I do now. But I hope that the Lord continues to use me in those avenues. Sure. That's awesome. Well, we would like to spend some time getting to know you a little bit. So why don't you tell us briefly about you? Where did you grow up? And tell us how you came to faith. And then tell us a little bit about your family. Sure. I actually grew up most of my life um, at the time as a kid in Kentucky near Cincinnati. Okay. And um, my family didn't go to church much as a kid. We started going to church more um, when I was in middle school. Okay. And at 14, I made a profession of faith, but I really don't think I was baptized or I mean, I was saved. I did get baptized, but my teenage years were just a wreck. I was a horrible teenager. I was mm. doing things I shouldn't be doing and it just didn't go well. Like life got worse after I made a profession of faith. And what? so I went off to college and I was doing all the Christian things. I was volunteering in church. I got involved in a sororities Bible study. I was not doing all the things that, you know, you shouldn't be doing and all. So I was in the sorority Bible study and that's actually when I came to faith in Christ. My Bible study leader asked me like, Hey, if, if you die today, why would you get to go to heaven? And I was like, well, you know, I'm a, a good person and I volunteer in church. And she's like, whoa, whoa, what if I told you it's not about what you do, but about what mm -hmm. he's done for you. And it was like, I explained my conversions like, Pauls. Like it was like mm -hmm. blinders came off and I just had this zeal and zest and fire for Lord wanting everybody to know about him. And my life ever since I was 18 has never been the same. Amazing. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, I'm so glad your sorority was such that it even had a Bible study. <laughs> there was Campus Crusade for Christ at the time, which now crew had mm -hmm. an outreach at the University of Kentucky where I went. And it was a specific outreach called The Rock for those in the Greek community. And we would go to different sorority and fraternity houses each week and have a worship service. And they would have different um, sorority and fraternity members leading Bible studies in the houses. Wow. wow. Gosh. Very cool. Well, praise the Lord for that. All right. So you studied clinical psychology. How did you become interested in this whole world? I mean, you said when you were young, you wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, you might even just share the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Tell me, uh, when you were just even starting out, like, did you have a plan for what you were hoping to do? And just kind of walk us through the beginning. Okay, my story is a little rough, y'all. So, <laughs> no, I love that. Um, 
I was taught as a kid to be an independent woman in case my husband ever leaves me. Okay. And so my dad was a doctor and he worked in his a practice. And so that was just the view. I didn't know anything else. I just knew, hey, I'm gonna I'm supposed to be a doctor and have a practice. And so my sister was very interested in psychology. She bought a lot of psychology books and then I just I don't by osmosis almost <laughs> reading those books just naturally desired that as well. And then when I was 10, my sister actually developed bulimia nervosa. And that really, mm-hmm. I think, just kind of headed me even more so in that direction. So I was going to be, and this is my rough part, I really wanted to be a big time psychiatrist living in downtown Manhattan mm-hmm. in like a penthouse and all of the things. Like mm-hmm. that's really what I wanted for my life at the time. And mm-hmm. by God's grace, thankfully, I do not have that. You know, it's funny because when you think about how we dream about things, we make these things seem so beautiful because it's fantasy, like it's what we've been dreaming about. And then when God gives us our real lives, are you just like, thank God that you're, thank you, Lord, that you're smarter than me, that you you know what's best for me. So that's beautiful. Well, Sarah, you have not just your master's degree, but you have a doctorate in psychology. Tell us, where did you go to school and what pushed you to keep going in that education to get all the way to the doctorate level? So my undergraduate degree was at the University of Kentucky and I, it was in, my major was psychology. My minor was communications and I wanted, I was pre-med because I was going to do psychiatry. At the time, um, managed healthcare really became more of a thing with Mm -hmm. insurance and HIPAA. And so what ended up happening was psychiatrists used to do a lot of the therapy, but they ended up moving more towards med management. And I don't really have an interest in med management. I really had an interest in doing the therapy portion. And so if a lot of times what you'll see in the mental health field is somebody is going to go to a master's level or a doctoral level psychologist or therapist, and they'll go to them for the counseling or therapy portion. And then the psychologist will work in conjunction with the psychiatrist if they need psychotropic meds. So I just didn't have a desire for that. And then after that, I ended up getting my, um, for clinical psych, the master's and doctorate degree programs are not separate. If you, you go into the program to get both other psychology programs, you can get a separate master's. And a lot of the people in my program had a separate master, like in counseling psych, but it doesn't count towards clinical. It's a four to five year program of first two to three years master's. And then next three to four five, whatever, internship, doctor, your doctorate degree and postdoc. And so, yeah. So I went into, it's a private school down in South Florida. We ended up living in South Florida near uh, Fort Lauderdale for six Mm -hmm. years. It Mm -hmm. was called Nova Southeastern University. And that is, was an APA accredited program. And Uh that's where I went. And that's actually where the Lord called my husband into ministry. Well, how about that? Okay. So at that time, what was Art, your husband, Before he was in ministry, what was he headed toward while you guys were in Florida? So the first year we moved down there, he was in banking. He was a personal banker. And after about a year, Jimmy Scroggins came down to, um, at the time, it's now Family Uh Church. At the time, Uh it was First Baptist of West Palm Beach. And he called Art after about a year of us living down there. He goes, hey, I started this church. This church is in the red. It's about to go under. Can you, I really need you. Can you come on staff? I'm not sure I can pay you, but I, I really need you to come on staff 
and we're already missing paychecks. So can you come? And now the, the church is doing phenomenal. It's multi-site, multi-ethic. I mean, it's just an incredible church. But Art was Jimmy Scroggins' first hire at the church. Well, how wow. amazing. And then the Lord used him serving probably there to call him into ministry and all that. Okay. Yeah, that was his call to ministry. And then he got his doctorate. Um, he already had his MBA. And then he got his doctorate at the same school. Okay, so I want to go back and talk about, you said you did not want to be a psychiatrist because they are mainly into managing all these different medicines. That's what you were saying by med management, right? Correct. And then you're more interested in the counseling aspect of being the therapy of psychology. Okay, I think that's a huge, um, huge distinction, even for women who are possibly listening to this, wondering, okay, well, what about me? You know, maybe they have an interest in those things too. And so that, I think that's a really big distinction. So as a clinical psychologist, that's what you call yourself, right? A clinical psychologist. What type of roles and positions, like what have you, tell me about just your kind of experience over the years and what did you do in those jobs? Yeah, I've had so many different uh, experiences in the psychology world. And I'm not in the psychology world anymore. And I know we'll get to talk about that later. But some of the jobs that I did, um, I was, they're so different. I was in an emergency inpatient behavioral facility. So I was on the child unit. So a lot of these kids had been abused, placed in foster care, were being abused in foster care, (sighs) and then were coming towards us um, for a short-term stay before we could find another placement of facility for them. So these were kids who like were aggressive towards us, cursing at us, hitting us. Um, It was just a mess. Some of the people there had had like an acute psychiatric, um, like all of a sudden they they had their first schizophrenic break. And so they were coming. I was on the adult unit once. And I sat with a guy who told me he was a vampire drinking people's blood. And so wow. <laughs> the experiences there, I initially, that was really my first job in the, in the psych field. I would leave crying at the time because yeah. I'd, I, I mean, this, the horrific stories of abuse that these kids went Ugh. through, just you're thinking, oh my goodness, like how could anybody treat a kid that way? Yeah. And so that was really my first job. It's very eye opening. It was like all in or all out. And so did you have kids at that time? Your own kids? I did not have kids at that time. Okay. I I did not have kids. Yep. Let's see. Some of the other jobs I had, I worked at Renfrew was one of my clinical rotations. That's a residential eating disorder facility. It's actually featured. If you've ever seen the HBO movie Thin, Okay. It's the Coconut okay. Creek Renfrew. So that okay. I did a rotation there. That's for women 14 all the way up with who are struggling with anorexia and bulimia. Okay. And that's residential. And then I worked at a child and adolescent traumatic stress program. I did community mental health, which was a lot of in-home therapy. And we were part of the Broward Sexual Assault and in inter- an intervention network. So we would meet with the BSO or if the FBI was involved and we would staff all the domestic minor sex trafficking that was coming through Miami. Um, And then when I moved here, I was in a private practice group and it was all self-pay, very high in clients. Um, So totally different than anything I've ever done. So I've really, I feel like I've targeted all. (laughs) Yes, you have. Well, Sarah, okay. A couple of things here. (laughs) First of all, just let me ask you, what did you love about these jobs? And then I want to ask you a follow-up. One of the things I loved is, one, I like, I'm an 
extrovert. Like you can't, we've tried to me- like measure my extroversion on a page and there's always like an arrow that goes off. So I love the coworkers. I generally enjoyed sharing Christ with coworkers. I try to be a light to my professors and the people I worked with. And then I have a passion for helping people. Um, if there's a need, I want to jump in. And one of my spiritual gifts is mercy. Like if I see that person on the street corner, I'm not like, man, he's a panhandler. I'm like, man, what kind of abuse did he suffer as a kid that got him to this place? Mm-hmm. And so I really wow. enjoyed helping people and and saying, hey, you are you don't have to do this alone. God's put people in your life. And so, yeah, th- that's really what I enjoyed about yeah. it. Um, and I learned so much. I was, especially being in South Florida where I was a minority, I got to learn so much about other cultures and I truly enjoy diversity. And I don't just mean we look different. I mean, your culture is different and I need to learn from you and your culture. And Mm -hmm. I just enjoyed seeing that because it just, it's like zooming out and saying, wow, like not everybody's like me and God did not design everybody like me. God designed so differently and uniquely. And so I really enjoyed that aspect, especially being in South Florida, because there was I mean, every time I went to someone's home, I had to ask them what their ethnicity was because that could change treatment. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. Okay. Here's the follow-up. A couple of things. I'm listening to these environments that you worked in with, especially these children who have been in foster care and they've been abused. My immediate response is compassion for these children and just heartbreak, Right. But what I love about you and the fact that you follow God's call to to study and get an education is it's not just that you have a heart of compassion, but God has really equipped you to know how to actually help these kids. I mean, if I went in there, I would just want to love on them and sit next to them and hold their hand. But I don't think I would be equipped. I know I wouldn't be equipped to actually help them progress. So, I mean, praise God that you're out there knowing how to actually help these people. That other second question I had to follow up was, um, how did you, with this gift of mercy and this empathy you're feeling, how did you hold the tension of, okay, I'm, I'm all in while I'm here with these children and even these adults. But then when you go home, how are you able, are you able to kind of turn that off? Because I will tell you, my um, background is in biblical counseling, and that was very, very hard for me. When I was doing a lot of counseling, I would walk out of those sessions and, you know, I would be at home washing dishes and I'm still thinking through those problems for, and I just could not put it down. So how did, did did you navigate that in some way or how did the Lord kind of give you space to do that? Yeah, it's when you're working with trauma, initially it is, it is very shocking at times. And there are definitely some stories that stick with you. And and sadly, when you do it enough, you do become a little desensitized. Mm -hmm. Um, And because when I'm, and this is not to put anybody down, but when you hear about kids that are being repeatedly traumatized, it almost, then someone comes in with like a they've been traumatized once it's their same trauma. They're both traumatized, but you've now been almost desensitized to where you can hear it. And, and sometimes that can actually be a good thing. Absolutely. Not taking it home. Yeah. The other thing is, is really good boundaries. There's, you know, I think a lot of people had somebody ask me the other day, what's the difference in like discipleship and counseling? And I wanted to say there's so much of a difference in discipleship and counseling. Yes. I disciple women, but I'm not counseling or doing therapy with those women. I might be referring them out. And so therapy and discipleship, and and this goes to how I was able to take it home, are very different 
uh, relationships. So mm-hmm. in a discipleship Good. relationship, it's more intimate. You're sharing your life. You might share your struggles. And in therapy, it's more of they're a consumer of you. It's a one-way relationship. That's so I'm Yes, I'm not sharing my intimate life with the people that I'm working with because that makes me more emotionally involved. And my intimate life might not be helpful for them either. That's, That's really, really helpful. helpful. Yeah. Um, Sarah, one of the things I've been thinking through as you're talking is it's one thing to disciple women and it's one thing to, or adults, and it's one thing to get adults to communicate what they're feeling and what they're going through. But when you think about the fact that your focus has been on children, I wonder what it must, the type of personal skills that you can't just learn in school, but the type of skills that are required to get a little person to be able to communicate to you all that they've experienced in a way that makes sense, in a way that's honoring to them, that gives them dignity, but they've experienced big adult things and their kids. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Believe it or not, there's not a ton of difference when I work with adults versus kids. I just have really? to be more fun when I work with kids and more creative. <laughs> okay. But the adults and the kids both need somebody who's empathetic, who can reflect feelings, who can sit with the hard stuff and take it and not shudder. They all, especially with trauma work, they need to know that you can handle their story. And that's going to be as a kid or adult where the kids, because their brain is not fully developed verbally um, or emotionally, I do get a little more creative, like play therapy. They would often play out feelings or even in traumatic play, they do repetitive play over and over with trying to figure out their trauma through play. So I'll give an example of I had a little girl who would just stick everything inside of a house, all the dolls, and she'd bring one doll outside the house and everybody in the house would yell at the little girl, the doll that happened to look like her outside the house yelling, there's no room for you in here. There's no room for you in this house. And that's exactly what the little girl was feeling. And so a lot of play is, hey, that little girl, that, that doll, sometimes you take it third person, that doll feels pretty bad that her family doesn't want her. And I'm wondering if you can relate to that. So a lot of it is reflecting play. We did art therapy. We did board games. Um, we would read stories about other people, maybe with similar um, similar issues or similar feelings, because it's less threat. It's less threatening to mm-hmm. say, "Yeah, that person must feel really bad about that situation," than it is to say, "I feel that way." And then also, depending on how old they are or what they have or hadn't had, a lot of it's teaching feelings. A lot of kids come in very angry because I always say. Anger is like the tip of an iceberg, but anger is, it's masking a lot of other feelings. And so when a kid is hurt, when they've been abused, they often come in angry. And so we have to get to, hey, I know you're feeling angry. I'm wondering what else is going on. Maybe you feel upset. Maybe you feel sad. It would make me feel sad if somebody hurt me, reflecting what feelings should look like. Yeah, we did a lot of play therapy. Have you gotten to see the back end of that. Like you sit in therapy sessions with kids and you're helping them through big trauma. But you know, it's almost like I'm picturing a doctor who does surgery on somebody and then the person leaves and they never see them again. And so I'm like, I hope that they're living healthy. But have you gotten to see the back end of some of the children that you've helped through your therapy? So it depends. So when you're working with ongoing childhood um, trauma, you don't usually get to watch them grow up. 
especially Mm -hmm. if you move jobs. So you don't always know what happened to them. And there's Mm -hmm. usually a lot of other people involved as well. But when I work with people like kids with anxiety, I absolutely do. In fact, that's my hope is they're only with me, you know, three, four months and then they're better and gone. And so, yes, you do see the success stories as well. But with uh, complex trauma, it's it's definitely a longer term process, especially if the child's coming into you and they're still in the trauma and you have to figure yeah. out, we can't process anything. You're in the trauma. I got to get you out of this situation. Yeah. So you don't always see the end result, but you do see things along the way. Like, Hey, this person wasn't safe and now they are safe. This person was with an abusive family and now they're not with an abusive family. And so you see the little wins along the way. How do you go about bringing parents in and involving them in the care for these kids? Um, I know sometimes the parents are the reasons why they're there, but when they're not, how do you thread that needle of bringing parents in to be involved? You can do that in different ways. So sometimes if the family was very healthy and high functioning, sometimes I just bring the parents in at the end or every week or every couple Mm -hmm. weeks just to give them an update on what I was doing and some things they could try at home. Mm -hmm. If the parents were, if I felt like it was a family problem or also a parenting problem, I would either work with them as parents or if I was working with the kid, Somebody else would be doing parent coaching with them. And sometimes you can do family therapy too. So we might bring the parent, especially with teenagers. Uh, if we felt, if I felt like the parent needed to know something, I'd say, hey, you know, you've been self-harming and I can't keep that between us. That was one of the things we agreed about. But I can either mm-hmm. tell your parent or we can bring them in and you can tell them. And mm-hmm. just kind of giving them that option. So there's different ways to bring parents in. And then when you have real young kids like two and three, most of my work's actually with the parents yeah. And then bringing the kid in occasionally. So it all depends on the age that's and the true. problem. That's what I was I, That was my next question was I wondered what age even some of these younger ones are coming in. And so even as young as two, you're, you're helping these little ones too. That's tough. Yeah. I would say the majority of the people that I've worked with, my clients, are probably between the ages of three to 13. I worked, I did work with adolescents as well. Especially when I worked, um, one of my jobs, we actually worked with uh, sexual offenders, and a lot of those were adolescent males. But yeah, Mm. a lot of it was preschool, elementary, and middle school. But you know, what a gift for these children to have somebody to talk to because, you know, like you said, I mean, they're not even fully developed yet, and they're trying to make sense of what is going on in their life, and to have you come in as as an advocate for them is is really amazing. to help help these little people grow and mature and be who they're meant to be. Well, are there some specific childhood disorders that you really specialize in? Um, I mean, I know we hear a lot about um, ADHD for kids. Are, are there, you mentioned the bulimia a minute ago. Is there something that you really feel like, wow, this is where I've seen the Lord use me in this particular um, disorder? Yeah, I worked at my last placement. I actually saw a lot of kids in anxiety. And so I would say I have a lot of experience with kids in anxiety. And it was definitely working at a group practice where you pay out of pocket. You just see different things. And so I would say kids in anxiety and then kids in trauma. Those are the two things I've probably worked the most with. And with trauma, you also get things like behavioral issues sometimes, like ODD or conduct disorder. And so I would work with kids and their families who their kids were very oppositional or starting to run away or set things on fire. So, and then kids with ADHD, we did a lot of uh, Mm. evaluations, like achievement testing for learning disabilities, psychological evals. 
Um, so that's really what I worked with. And I'm now I'm drawing a blank on your the second question you asked me about that. <laughs> yeah. Is there any, just even thinking through anxiety, I mean, there could be moms listening to this right now and they feel like, wow, you know, my kid's really struggling. It, it just, I know this is kind of a big question, but even just a couple little pointers for parents right now listening to say, here's how, you know, two or three ways I might help my child with anxiety. Okay. So I have three great pointers. One is we know anxiety runs in families. If you're an anxious parent, you're more likely to have an anxious child. Interesting. That could be genetic. There are some genetic factors, but it's actually due more to modeling. So if you're struggling a lot with anxiety, you're modeling that anxiety for your kid and you're unknowingly not allowing your child to engage in things that are developmentally appropriate. Mm. So activities because you have anxiety. So your child then is not getting some of the childhood experiences of like playing outside without supervision. You know, if you have an eight-year-old, they can play in your backyard without supervision or even go down the street. But for an anxious parent, they may not be allowing that. So your child's missing out. So one is make sure you're getting help yourself. That's great. Number two, and this this doesn't just apply to kids and anxiety. This really applies to everything. It's labeling. Often I have a strong-willed kid. I have a defiant kid. I have an anxious kid. And so when we label our kids that way, we're more likely to interpret their behavior through that lens. And we're more likely to treat them that way. And then the kid will live up to that label. So one of the things I did, and it it works so well with kids and anxiety. One of the very first things I did, and it was like a game changer. I'd say, oh, you know, tell me. They're like, well, I'm a really anxious kid. I'm like, what? anxious kid. Wait, wait, wait. Tell me about that. And so they would not say, well, you know what? Do you do things when you're feeling scared? They said, yes. I said, oh, well, you're not an anxious kid at all. You're a really brave kid that sometimes mm. deals with anxiety. And that's so important because the only labels that we should be giving our kid is you are made in God's image and yes. who you are in Christ. If you have anxiety, you're a you're an image bearer. Yes, you're a little sinner at times, but you're an image bearer <laughs> that happens to deal with anxiety. Or you're my kid who's really encouragement and positive and generous that sometimes struggles with defiance. And so it's no longer a character trait, but a struggle or weakness that we can improve upon. I love that. So don't label your kid as an anxious kid or a defiant kid or even a strong-willed kid. Label your kid as an image bearer who has strengths and weaknesses and focus more on their strengths and their weaknesses. Beautiful. Perfect. And the other thing is I call it the push and pull. And this is what I see in scripture over and over. There's like 365 verses that deal with fear and worry in scripture. Mm. And I mean, if you think about Moses not wanting to go, Jonah not wanting to go, Abraham feeling scared, the disciples, God didn't let them get out of that, but he offered his presence in every situation. He drew them in, he pulled them in, offered his presence, and he pushed them out. So with anxiety, one of the hallmark traits is avoidance. And so parents think, oh, well, if you're scared of soccer, we don't have to go. And I tell parents, no, no, no. You need to push them because when you tell them they don't have to do the thing that's making them anxious, you are actually sending them the message that you don't think they can handle it. Okay. So we want to be there. Like if your kid's scared to go to bed at night, be there for them, lay with them, and you're going to be slowly withdrawing each night. Like you're going to lay with them in bed the first night till they fall asleep. Second night, sit beside their bed. Third night in the doorway because you're going to say, I love you, but I think you can handle this. And we know God's with you and, and he can do those things through you. So it's the push and it's the pull in and the push out effect. Oh, that's really helpful. <laughs> okay. First of all, yes, this is great for the children. This is great for adults. Okay. <laughs> Everything you just said was great for adults. And Sarah, this is perfect because we're looking at society now that's been affected 
um, with the pandemic. So social, um, sorry, mental health has come to the forefront in ways that it really hasn't. And that's been so powerful and positive in some ways, but also so um, negative and almost uh, hindering in other ways. So what can you, what would you say to, yes, parents, but also give caregivers, teachers, uh, people who spend time with children, and then even on the back end about ourselves, who <laughs> the pandemic has really thwarted us socially and emotionally. And so I'm wondering what kind of advice you could give about how to deal with that and begin to start living a more, I guess, less fearful life. Yeah, we've seen increases uh, through the pandemic. Um, we've seen it in anxiety, depression, and substance use. Mm. Believe it or not, people think, oh, we've seen it in suicide, but suicide's actually been on the rise for about the past 30 years, sadly. Okay. And so I don't know if the pandemic, I think those, it might affect that some, but we've seen it more in anxiety, depression, and substance use more than anything. And so one is give yourself and others grace. You mm. and your kids have missed out on things, not to your fault, but because we were on lockdown. So kids actually did miss out. And so trying to catch up on that development takes patience and mm -hmm. a lot of grace and mercy. But it's also time to, if, if you're at a point where you're still not going out of your house or not engaged in activities, I would say it's probably time to seek some professional help because it makes me think that maybe there's some anxiety or fear that's getting in the way. Okay. And again, that would then be the message that you're delivering to your kid. Okay. At this point, if you're, if you're getting back out there, but you're like, hey, my kid's a little bit behind in math or socially, they're not where I think they should give them the opportunities to practice at home. To actually teach your kids, hey, when you shake hands with an adult, let's practice shaking hands. Look at their eye. This is how you respond. So your home is the training ground and the launching pad for what you're going to do outside. So train and teach them at home and then let them practice with their friends and practice. And you can even go, hey, how did it go this time when you went to school and you went up to your friend? We practiced meeting a new friend. How did that go today? Oh, weren't able to do it today. That's okay. We'll try again tomorrow. Um, our son got a little, our older son, we felt like got a little bit behind in math. So we took him to a mathnasium program. He not only caught up, he's like, yes. mathnasium's now harder than what I'm learning at school. So wow. it's okay to seek out support if you feel like your child's gotten a little bit behind academically or socially, or you've gotten behind um, through the pandemic. It's really, really helpful. I think we're all feeling that um, if you if we have kids in the home, and um, that's really helpful. I love the training ground at home and then go out and practice. And so... What about um, one of the things that you've talked a lot about is just helping parents or caregivers who, again, I feel like we're kind of hitting more on this topic of anxiety, but just feeling very overwhelmed with just the daily stressors, whether it's truly just parenting or it's parenting combined with work stress. I mean, there's our lives are so complex. I know for our family, we actually have just recently this year um, gotten rid of our television. And that for me was such a, a crutch, especially in, in times of just, okay, I need to get dinner started. Let me put on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse for my three-year-old at the time. How can not just moms, but um, even caregivers who are, you know, we're just, there's just so much going on. How can we deal with some of these, these overwhelmed feelings? 
Yeah. So anytime someone's feeling overwhelmed, um, one of the questions I want to ask is, are the areas in their life where God has designed them specifically, are they off? And here's what I mean by that. Because if we're not living within God's design for our lives and our bodies, we are more likely to feel overwhelmed. Now, these may not be a cure-all, but it is definitely a place to start. So I'm just going to tell you some of the areas um, where God has designed us to live specifically. And then if one of these areas is off, I'd say start there. So here's just a few. Um, Our physical activities. This is our exercise, our sleep, and our healthy eating. And then also, believe it or not, our breathing. So when someone's in a panic attack, God's designed us to breathe a certain way. Your breathing changes, and that's why you're not getting enough oxygen and your hands are cramping up. And so breathing, you're breathing back with like diaphragmatic breathing or breathing retraining to what God's designed our bodies to breathe like. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, you're having a panic attack, are you breathing the way God's designed you to breathe? The other things is life enhancing task. This sounds crazy because you're like, I can't take on more. I'm very overwhelmed. But if you can take something off your plate that's life draining and it replace it with a life enhancing task, you're actually exercising the muscle of your brain and you're storing up cognitive reserves to then be able to better cope. So this might be even something like, uh, I'm going to learn to knit or I'm going to learn to sew or I'm not going to put up my pick up my phone when I read this educational book for five minutes a day. So it actually does work your brain and helps out. The other areas are rest. Are you resting? Not sleep, but are you actually taking the Sabbath that God's commanded you to take? Responsibility is God's called us to work and have dominion. Sometimes in depression or being stressed, we we can't. We, we feel stuck and we don't want to do anything. But when we don't work, we actually feel worse about ourselves. So I say, if you're not doing anything, if you're lying on a couch all day because you have major depression, get up and just do the dishes. Start small, but start pursuing God's design for work and dominion in your life. Hobbies and enjoyment. Moms are like, what hobbies and enjoyment? It's my kids. That's all. <laughs> right. I don't have time for hobbies and enjoyment. And this is more so, I would think, in the early years. Early, I'd say some of the most stressed out moms are moms of little boys <laughs> because you're saving themselves from harming themselves. <laughs> and then moms of middle school girls are the most emotionally overwhelmed because girls Ooh. have all the hormones, right? But there are times where you can find something, even if you're doing it with your kid or your husband or someone can babysit to where you're doing something you enjoy. And I don't mean zoning out on social media. Um, practice gratitude, like just thanking God every day for the little things, create a flexible schedule. God is not a God of disorder. He is very much a God of order. And so if you can create a flexible schedule for you and your family and somewhat stick to it, that will help you to feel less overwhelmed. Uh, ask for help. God has given us just a a body, the church body, and he's gifted all of us in different ways. And so you need to ask people for help. If like, if you're struggling with finances, ask your brother or sister in Christ to help you. Someone who has a gift in finances and then finances, make sure you're following God's design. And last I'd say is community. Are you in community with somebody else? There's so many things that that is all God's design for our life. And when one of those things is off, we're going to feel even more overwhelmed. Genius. Those are genius. I mean, I can't wait for this podcast to actually go live so I can listen to this again and take notes on everything you just said. My goodness. You know what, Sarah, I, listening to what you were saying, first of all, that was very appropriate for not just parents, not just caregivers, not just like this was life giving for 
people in general. And I think that that's what's beautiful about this conversation because at Women in Work, the whole point is what the thing that I do, my work, how do, how is this not only just productive, but what is the kingdom productivity aspect of this? And so that leads me to this question. What aspects of God's nature would you say you image through the work that you're doing? Like I listened to that, that list and I'm like, life giver. <laughs> right. What do you say? What would you say that, um, a, a, someone who's a Christian woman whose field is this, this is their career field. How would you say that you image aspects of God's nature? I think there are three um, that come to mind is, you know, when God designed Eve, he called her the helper. And that word that he uses helper is the same word he uses for himself in the Old Testament. And my career is definitely a helping career. Mm -hmm. Um, So helper, I love to come alongside people and genuinely help them. It gives me great joy when they are doing better Um, and function better in the kingdom and for themselves. Because, man, God doesn't want us to live a life where we're just suffering all the time. He definitely uses suffering to bring us closer to him. But, man, there's so much joy and contentment that's found in him. So helping, serving. Mm-hmm. In my job, there's a lot of times where we go just above and beyond what people would even pay us because we really want to see these people flourish. And then last is that gift of mercy. It You cannot be in this field and not have empathy and care for people. It wow. just would not go well. And I, it it makes me more grateful. But the other thing that always comes to mind in, in this is it makes me more grateful because I realize that the family I was born in, the brain I was given, the opportunities, my body, even how it functions is nothing I've done. It's mm-hmm. all that God's given me. And so that makes me more grateful. So I would say helping, serving, and mercy are always to reflect him in That's that. Really and then beautiful. Love it. So Sarah, you mentioned um, that a lot of the work you did was in Florida. Now you guys live in North Carolina. So at some point you have had to think through, okay, I'm going to leave this job at this particular place. I'm going to come over here and and work over here and take this role. How did you think through that? Was this, you know, a family decision with you and Art? Um, Help our listeners who are even right now considering maybe I'm in a position that I don't need to be in anymore. Are there some pointers or just some points of wisdom that um, you have discovered that might help them? Yeah. So when Art and I were getting ready to move up here, honestly, I didn't necessarily want to. So I was like, well, I'm I'm still in uh, internship. And Art's like, that's okay. Southeastern said they could wait till you're done. And I was like, well, I'm pregnant. I was 33 weeks pregnant when we moved here. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm pregnant. There's I can't move. He's like, that's okay. Southeastern's going to take care of that too. <laughs> so the Lord just opened, like every objection I had, it was so clear. The Lord's like, nope. Like even getting pregnant with my second, we didn't get pregnant when I wanted to. And by God's grace, we didn't because it would have been about time for me to deliver when we were moving. But instead mm-hmm. I was 33 weeks pregnant instead of 39 weeks pregnant. Right. So even years before, when the Lord's moving, you just can't deny it. Like at some right. point I just have to say, this is me trying to find reasons to not obey the Lord. Oh, I mean, man. he's just opened every single door I've prayed to have opened or closed. And when you say, Lord, we, when you pray specifically, please close the door. And then he opens it. You're like, I, I can't really deny what that. What can I do about that? Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. But you know, one of the, I really wanted to share this about switching jobs. I completely left my career 
And here's why. And this is such a big aspect of my story that I can't even leave out because it really proclaims God's goodness in in ways that I can't, I could have never fashioned myself. When I was in the group practice here, I would go, I go to Summit and, and J.D. Greer, Pastor J.D. would always say, hey, what area of your life are you not giving a blank check to the Lord? In? And I felt true conviction over my job. Wow. I had, there were some aspects of secular psychology that I already wouldn't practice. But then it got to the point where the last straw was I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy with a guy and he was not there in my field. I couldn't just openly share Christ. It's APA. It's Mm -hmm. definitely not a Christian field. And so we I ended up feeling like I was helping him. He was finding his identity and his work to the neglect of his family. But because he I could drop things like, oh, you know, my husband attend church, like drop little nuggets. But Really, I felt like I was helping him remove his idol from work and place it in family. So I was like, I'm just helping him move his identity from one idol to the next idol. Mm. Because what if his family falls apart? I mean, it was great that he was spending more time with his family than at work. But what if your family falls apart? And so I fought and I did not obey the Lord right away. I really didn't. But every single sermon, I was like, they wrote this for me. Like, (laughs) And so I, you know, what I did was one, I prayed about it. Mm-hmm. Too. I, I spoke with my husband. I actually, the other thing, if you're considering leaving a career is consult with other people. I went to somebody mm-hmm. very wise. I said, hey, I just, Chuck Wallace, actually, if uh, Missy, you know him. Oh, yeah. He's a favorite. Oh, yes. And I said, oh, Chuck, goodness. what? I don't know God's will for my life. Well, I do know God's will because it's written in scripture, but I meant with regards to the next step. Mm-hmm. And he said, Sarah, God only holds you. It's like a scroll. God only holds you accountable for the part you can see, not the part that hasn't been unrolled yet. And so you I have to that. walk you have to walk in obedience. And so Mm -hmm. I fought leaving my career because I finally was at the place I had dreamt my entire life to be in private practice, licensed on my own, um, you know, doing everything. And God's like, you never asked me what, what I, you wanted me to do. Took it upon yourself to do that. And I'm actually calling you to do women's discipleship and full-time ministry. And I thought, me? Like women's discipleship. (laughs) That's not my background, Lord. I think you got the wrong person. Like this is not me, Lord. And I finally, through a series of events, I was like, I I have to obey. I have to get out of the boat. I have to step on that water. I can't live convicted. And I stepped out of that boat and God changed my life drastically. Just opened doors after doors after doors for women's discipleship. He shored up my theology through taking like um, a hermeneutics, homiletics class through Summit. I started a certificate program at Southeastern and now God has used me. I've discipled women probably every semester, seen my kids come to faith in Christ. Wow. I mean, it's been mind blowing how he orchestrated every detail. And now God's used my time in women's discipleship to shore up my theology to now better help parents through mental health with a biblical foundation. Sarah. And so now I feel oh like the goodness. Lord's calling me back to practice. So yeah. I don't know where I'm going after this, but I do feel like the Lord's leading me back to practice. I do. He's brought people. I write for the, I've written for the ERLC and church answers and church leaders and God's just doing podcast. I mean, he just keeps bringing stuff. I don't seek it out, but I really feel like I now have a good conceptualization, and even can treat people looking at how research what research says, but how that makes sense in light of scripture instead of founded in self-help psychology. And so, Ugh, yes. It's amazing. <laughs> Sarah, it's almost like um, Abraham and Isaac and just being like, are you willing to sacrifice this? Are you willing to lay this down for me? And Abraham's response was, yes, because I know you're God. You know what I'm I saying? Had a, and, 
Well, yeah. I had conversations with the Lord in my car. I was like, here I am, Lord, send me. I just, you know what I did? Here I am, Lord, send me. And he did. So be careful when you pray that because <laughs> right. it, it will rock your world. Um, but I am so grateful. The, what the Lord's done in the past few years, I left my job in 2018. What the Lord has done in the past few years is better than anything I could have done myself with all my work and all my might. And I'm so content in every situation now because I just know that I'm following his lead. I love that so much. You mentioned how, you know, through clinical psychology, it's really a foundation of secularism. And then by the grace of God, now, you know, you took these classes and you feel like your your biblical theology is really strong. I feel like, you know, when I was in seminary, I studied biblical counseling and it was very, very much just the biblical foundation part. And now, you know, years later, I've been out of seminary since 2009. It's I mean, I really can see how much value there is in the the equipping that you got to actually help people um, in ways that it's not that the Bible is insufficient. The Bible, obviously, through the Spirit of God, is is um, sufficient for life and godliness. But I mm-hmm. feel like it is such a, a grace. I can just see, just even the way you describe that, of the Lord really bringing these two things together mm-hmm. in a way that is so useful for parents in the kingdom. And um, I don't know, that's not really a question, but is there anything you would (laughs) speak to that? Yeah. You know, for a long time with mental health, the church, there's really been a stigma and we've gone like, and I I hate to use these labels, but I don't know how very far right biblical counseling, we use nothing but the Bible to, I feel like we've actually moved so far left now that I'm worried that people are now using all these self-help techniques and it's completely void of anything gospel related. Now there are definitely things, things like autism and Tourette's and learning disabilities where Mm. it's definitely more genetic or there's, and and that's where the middle ground comes in is we have to be able to look at Genesis three and say, all right, what did the fall, what did it affect? Well, it affected biology because she now has, Eve now has labor pains. It affected our dominion and our environment because now there's thorns and thistles. It affected work because of the sweat of your brow. It affected your relationship, Adam and Eve fighting. It affected our separation from God. And so mental health touches all wow. of those. It touches our environment. It touches our work. It touches our biology. It touches our relationship with others. And it touches our relationship with God. And anytime you're wow. struggling with mental health, it's going to be in one, if not all of those areas. Sometimes though, there is biology and we have to say, hey, this is Tourette syndrome. This person has a misfiring in their brain. And, and other times they say you have an anxiety and there might be a genetic component. A lot of it's modeling and a lot of it is maybe yes. not rooted in the word. And, and we can pair discipleship almost with some counseling, so to speak, and technique. So if you're struggling with anxiety, I definitely want us to get in the word because when you understand God is sovereign over everything, that's going to help your anxiety. But if you're having a panic attack, let me show you how to breathe so you can actually process that God is sovereign over everything. (laughs) Right. I love that combination. So helpful. All right. Well, I definitely want our listeners, no doubt they have heard this conversation and they are like, I need to hear more from this girl. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I want to point them to your podcast that you host with your husband, Art Rayner, called Parenting and Pennies. Tell us about this new podcast y'all have. I mean, you just launched not too long ago. 
Yeah, we just did our first season. There's 10 episodes and our next season launches next week. It's in partnership with ChristianParenting.org. So we're one of the podcasts on their network. Okay. Um, it's so funny because my husband and I, our areas of ministry are so different. And I'm like, Lord, you could never bring these together. <laughs> and then we got Parenting and Pennies. So again, it. don't ever tell the Lord he can't do something. But we pair how like finances, which is my husband's field, and parenting, which is my field, and we pair them together. How to teach your kids and family about biblical stewardship, and so that's Love parenting it. in pennies. Um, and then that's I post great. a lot just on my own Instagram at Sarah and Rainer. I do a lot of mental health, and and all my articles are linked on there, and podcast interviews are linked on there, so they can find me there as well. Love it. Sarah, okay, we have to close, but one of my biggest regrets is that at the beginning of this podcast, I didn't say, pull out your paper and pencil, right? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So I'm I'm saying, I'm about to ask a question, be prepared to write something great down. Um, (laughs) So as we close, this is the way we like to close all of the podcasts. What one piece of advice would you leave women, women with who want to honor God through their vocational calling? Yeah. What I've learned over the past few years at times, leaving a career that you spent your whole life, literally like your whole life thinking mm-hmm. about and desiring and not really even wanting to leave. It left me in seasons of wilderness at times, but mm. here's what God faithfully taught me over and over. Sarah, your job, your role is a mom, your role is a wife, your role is a psychologist, your role is a teacher or a doctor or ministry leader or girlfriend or whatever it is. It's a role you play. My mission is always the same. And whatever role I give yes. you, you're to, li- you're to live out that mission. And that's to um, love me and teach others about me. It's the great commission. And it doesn't, if Mm. I'm a teacher, I'm to live out the great commission. If I'm a neighbor, how can I be intentional with my neighbors? How can I intentionally invest in other women? How can I intentionally love my kids all for the mission of Christ? My role might change over and over, but when I'm in a season of wilderness and I don't know what God's next step for my career is, I don't have to worry because I know he's got me where he needs me. And I'm being intentional with proclaiming his gospel right where I am. Beautiful. Drop. Goodness. (laughs) This might be one of my favorite episodes. This has just been so good, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Well, I love spending time with you ladies. I'm so thankful for the work you guys do with just letting women know like, hey, whether you're working from home or you're a stay-at-home mom or full-time work outside the home, that God's got a vision for you and you're not alone. And I love that. And I love what you ladies do. So I'm so grateful and honored that you would even ask me to come on. (laughs) Well, it's been a blast. A blessing and a blast. Exactly right. (laughs) All right. Well, um, that will close us up for today. And um, blessings, friends. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to check out our website at womenwork.net for today's show notes. There will be more information about today's conversation there. And while you're there, take a look at the Women in Work podcast discussion questions. We provided those so that you can lead your friends from work, your neighborhood, or your church into useful conversations that will encourage you as you take your next step of faith into your calling. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss another one, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also love for you to take a minute to rate and review our show so that more listeners can find us. And with that... We hope you've been inspired to more confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. See you next time.